All right, Psalm 49. Let's stand, as is our custom here at New City, for the reading of God's word from Psalm 49, and then we will get into it. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he would live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish And leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve their boasts. Selah. Like sheep. They are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich. When the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praised when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm probably not alone in this, but I think we all love a survival story. Whether the, the thing to be overcome is a circumstance, or your past, or community, or a wild beast, or a bad guy, or a bad gal, or something else. We all love a survival story. One of the more famous survival stories um, you have probably heard Uh, From this pulpit, I know, because we've used this illustration, this man before, but one of the more well-known survival stories is that of Louis Zamperini. Zamperini was an Olympic athlete. He competed in the Olympics in 1936, but you know him probably because he went on to fight in World War II. He was an airman. He volunteered uh, in the Army Air Forces and survived lots and lots of things. He made it through flight training when hundreds of others didn't. He eventually got into battle, survived all kinds of fire. Eventually his plane plummeted into the Pacific Ocean. Zamperini would go on to live for weeks on a small inflatable raft. 
eating what he could, either birds or fish, catching them with his hand, eating them raw, drinking only what he could catch in terms of uh, rainwater, fighting off sharks. And when he thought for a moment that salvation had come in the form of a plane, he was rudely awakened when it was an enemy Japanese fighter that shot at him. Zamperini spent 47 days on that raft. Unless it's changed since the last time I checked, that is the longest anyone has survived uh, on open sea. But he gets to land. Salvation has come. And yet he was captured immediately and would go on to spend two years in a prisoner of war camp, beaten, starved, and utterly destroyed. He is liberated by the Allied forces, but uh, just a bundle of bone and skin, having seen almost half of his American partners die in that prisoner of war camp. But that wasn't the greatest challenge of Zamperini. Sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. Um, You've probably read possibly the Lauren Hillenbrand's account of his life, the book Unbroken, turned into a movie by the same title. But Zamperini's biggest struggle was not being lost at sea for 47 days, eating raw fish and birds and fighting for his life, fending off sharks, getting shot at by planes, and two years in a POW camp. His greatest battle was a 40-day war against pneumonia. Many, many years after all of those things that he went through, this Olympic athlete turned survivor at the age of 97 years old on July 2nd, 2014, lost a battle. Louis Zamperini died in 2014. So as I started my time with you this morning with the, the triumph and enjoyment of a survival story, friends, there is no such thing as a survival story. You die. I die. You will die. I will die. You're like, wow, really glad I came to church this morning. Great start. And uh, this is one of the reasons why I am thankful for a church uh, such as this at New City where we do preach expositionally. I knew today was Psalm 49 because last week was Psalm 48. I know tomorrow is Psalm 50. We preach through the scriptures as much as I would have loved to maybe skip Psalm 49. The Lord doesn't let me. And the topic for this morning is that. I don't mean for it to be morbid. I don't mean for it to cause unhelpful anxiety and worry. But I would also not be a good pastor of your souls if I didn't remind you. You will close your eyes and not open them again. The ticker in your chest will stop working. Blood stops circulating. You will expire. And I wonder, when was the last time you thought about that? When was the last time you meditated upon your final breath? Your death. And, as this psalm is going to do for us, let that influence your present life. Death, you could say, is the common experience of all humans. Death comes for us all, whether regardless of what type of person we are. It comes for all people in all times, all ethnicities, all classes, in all places. And so it should be no surprise to you that when you come to the Scriptures, it is also a common theme. 
It has been the common theme since the fall of man. So whether you're reading a biblical history or singing the Psalms or looking at other poetry or wisdom literature, apocalyptic, reading the Gospels, reading the letters, you will find death in the pages of Scripture. And Psalm 49 is no exception. And so in one real sense, our topic this morning is our final day on earth, our death. But it's in this topic that I believe we can actually discover a living hope, a risen hope. We can say a resurrected hope in a person, Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen for us. So that death is not the final word for us, friends. So the rest of our time this morning, looking at this psalm, I have one sentence, really, one argument, and then I chop that sentence into three, and that's how we're going to survey Psalm 49. What I want you to see is what Psalm 49 is saying to us, looking you in the eye. It's saying, pay attention, because everyone dies, but not everyone goes to the same place. Friends, pay attention. You will die. Everyone dies. But not everyone goes to the same place. That has all sorts of implications for us this morning. First, pay attention, verses 1 through 4. This is uh, classified as a wisdom psalm for a number of reasons. Most plainly because the verbiage, the words used, is... Uh, reminiscent of that in other wisdom literature, namely Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. You might even put Job and Lamentations up there. We'll see a few examples of that in our time this morning. But this is a psalm trying to teach the singers or the prayers something. Psalm 49 is wanting to teach us something. Largely, it's trying to give us wisdom on how to live presently now in light of our expiration. Look at verse 1. Here's the, the pay attention part. Or the listen. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. It's a common um, literary theme and device in the wisdom literature. It's to speak to all people. We're not just thinking about Israel here. We're not just talking about the covenant people of God. As in the wisdom literature, it's everybody needs to hear this. Pay attention. You can say there's common grace in this psalm for people who are even outside of the faith that they should think about. Listen. Pay attention. Watch out, friends. All peoples, all inhabitants of the world. Pay attention. He goes on in verse 3. The psalmist is now saying, My mouth will speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. And he goes on to say he's going to incline his ear to a proverb, wisdom, understanding, understanding, wisdom, proverb. These are phrases used in the wisdom literature, get this, for spiritual perception. Specifically, the one who has wisdom, who has understanding, who hears proverbs, is the one who is spiritually perceptive so that they can apply and approach all of their life from God's perspective. That's what it means to have wisdom. To be able to take your God-centered thoughts, your biblical or Christian worldview, you could say, the Scriptures, and apply it to every area of your life. 
That's the wise one. That's the one with understanding. The one who is able to search the Scriptures, know Jesus, know about eternity, know what is true because God has spoken it, take that and let it impact, influence, permeate everything. So when I wake up in the morning, what's your thought? Is it theocentric, God-centered? Or is it day-centered, you-centered? What are your thoughts when you go to sleep? Does your view of God, your relationship with Jesus impact your pocketbook, your giving, your selflessness, your time, your schedule, the way you view your marriage, the way you treat your children and disciple your children, the way you look at lost people, the way you view your job. Friends, the, the one who is wise and understanding is the one who knows the Scriptures, knows the words of God, because in so doing we know the God of the Scriptures, and in knowing that God, we apply that, we take it, take Him and apply it to all areas of our life. There's no window, no room in our soul and in our lives that we keep God out of. He's in everything. He's changed everything. That's the, the application for us. And it's super basic, right? And yet maybe one of the most hard things to actually do. I'm preaching to the choir when I say this sentence. God's people ought to be pervasively influenced by God. Everybody's like, yeah. Duh. How are you doing? Is every aspect, window of your soul, pervasively influenced by God? When you wake up in the morning, go to bed at night, when you're consuming entertainment, when you're watching the news, when you're reading, when you're thinking, when you're in class, when you approach your work, your schedule, your time, how you're going to manage things, is God speaking over all those things? If not, you're not wise. You have no understanding. The wise and understanding one is who knows God as He's revealed Himself and seeks to apply that in all areas of life. So I said it was simple and basic, but it's extremely hard, friends, and I feel that. My own soul, how hard this is. Jesus Christ and Him crucified changes everything. My life, all of my being, is to be oriented around, facing toward, influenced by Jesus. Such that the rest of my days, my Christian life, however many years I have left on earth, is actually just growing and developing in being able to take that biblical worldview, my relationship with God, and bring it to bear on everything. That's the first one. Pay attention. Because, point two, everyone dies. So buckle up. I get this from verses 5 through 12. Friends, we do not live forever in these bodies on this earth as it is now. This world is in our home. Your spouse, your house, vehicle, job, children, hobbies, gear, technology, possessions, clothes can't come with you. Hence my title, we can't take it with us. When death comes for us, and it will, we leave this world like we came in, naked and empty-handed. Now, this could do 
One of a couple things, two things in particular. One, drive you to great despair. Maybe that's even what it's beginning to do now. I would be lying if I didn't say I didn't get shaken a little bit thinking about death and reading about death endlessly this week. Thinking about my own expiration. little anxiety creeping up, tickling the back of your neck right now. Like, what is that going to be like? To feel your heart stop. Can lead you to despair. You don't have to Google very long to find numerous examples of terrible lives. Lives of despair because of this truth. That is that we die. Or deathbed despair. French philosopher and writer Voltaire is a great example. He's reported to have on his deathbed, oh, I should say, philosopher, writer, a uh, hater of Christianity. Violent opponent of Christianity. On his deathbed, crying out to a nurse taking care of him, I'll give you half of everything I have. Half of everything I'm worth if you will give me six months longer to live. Or, this thinking about our end, our expiration, our death to come, could lead us to hope, actually, in a couple of odd ways. I'm thinking of the words of Psalm 90. We actually sing it here at church. It's the Psalm of Moses where uh, he's crying out and we can cry out with him. Lord, teach us to number our days so we can get a heart of wisdom and have glad souls. Or, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, the catechism that I'm working through with my wife this calendar year, I'm just constantly struck by question one. We sing a song by the Gettys here on Sunday mornings. What is our hope in life and death? It's from this. And yes, I'm about to read an answer to you that's like a paragraph long, and three-year-olds used to memorize it. Um, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your answer to that question? Heidelberg Catechism, written in the middle of the 16th, uh, 16th century, says that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is our hope in life and death. that We're actually not our own, but belong body and soul to another because Jesus Christ has purchased us. We have forgiveness of sin, and so death is not the end. It is the end of things how we know it, but it's not the end. So thinking about this psalm, which you heard these words, be not afraid when a man comes rich, his glory of his house increases, for he dies and he will carry nothing away, verse 17. The problem, I think, and the challenge in our day and age is, I think, death's distance. What I mean by that is not that some of us have longer to live. I don't know why I just put up myself in that category. I'm assuming I'm young. Uh, not, not that we have distance from death. Some of us have longer to live. That's not what I mean. When I'm speaking of death's distance, I mean we have consciously pushed death away from our eyes, away from our view, so we see it and experience it as little as possible on a day-to-day -day basis. Let me give you four examples just briefly. First, what, is, what would you say would be a common experience of most churches in the last 500 years? 
regardless of denominations, regardless of geography. There's a number of good answers. You might say Bible, preaching, praying. They would sing. Yes, you give the Sunday school answer. Jesus, you would be right. But I'm thinking of something else. One common experience going to church in, in decades past would have been that on your way in, you walked through or around a cemetery. Your people were buried right next to you as you walked into church. You came in here before we gave the call to worship thinking about your mortality. That you're going to be next to John, Jill, and Joe. That you buried. They're right out there. We've taken it away. We pushed it away. I don't know why. You can do a research paper on what happened there. I'm not saying why, but it's just a fact. Secondly would be language. I've been tempted, and just because my default setting and preaching so far, that every time I say death or die, I've wanted to say pass away. We want to change the way we speak about death. Gone to a better place, my least favorite, gone upstairs. Gone to the man upstairs. What, what is that? Death. Die. Expire. Third, not just in cemeteries and language, but also in our homes. Friends, in generations past and even around the globe still today, you passed away at home. In a bedroom or living room where your loved ones were huddled around you, praying with you, reading scripture over you. Friends would leave church or dinner parties, drive by, stop by, say something to you, lay hands and pray for you, sing a psalm. Now, based upon most recent numbers, only 10% of Americans die at home. I'm not making judgment calls on, on whether you should or shouldn't. I'm just making the statement. Only 10% of us now die at home, which would have been right before everyone's eyes, every moment, until your heart stops. And lastly, frequency. Take, for example, Cotton Mather. He was the New England Puritan who lived from 1663 to 1728. Fourteen children. <laughs> I'm busy with four. You might be busy with one or two or more. Fourteen children. Can you imagine? What I can't imagine is burying 13 of them. Most of them in infancy, the rest before 20, only one outliving pops. Or my favorite English Puritan writer, John Owen, writer, preacher from 1616 to 1683, married the love of his life, Mary Rook, in 1644, 11 children. Ten of them died in their first year of life. One of them lived to adulthood, praise the Lord, to be married and immediately die of consumption, just to be followed by his beloved Mary Rook, dead. He buried them all. I have many more uh, examples here, but I want to move on. Death has been right here for most people throughout most of church history. We've pushed it away and Moved it away from church, moved it away from our home, moved it away from our vocabulary, and truly to the praise of God, moved it away in terms of frequency. I do thank God for medicine. I do thank God for longer life. But I simply want to observe that death is often hidden from our eyes on a day-to-day basis. And I wonder at least what it would do spiritually to our souls, psychologically to our minds, if we were crossing death more regularly. And I'm saying this with trepidation because I also know we have had death strike the New City community recently in a couple of ways. 
a beloved sister in Christ. In this room, we celebrated her life. A mother of one of our elders. Your loved ones. So what is the hope? What do we do with this? How do we think about this? And to make things even more complex, the psalmist is speaking of death, meditating on death, but it's in connection to something. And this is like the the second theme we could say of the psalm. Look at verse 5. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the sin or iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Well, who are those who cheat me and why are they surrounding me? They're those who trust in wealth and boast of the abundance of riches. Do you see the question, the riddle that he's wrestling with? Why are the, the sinners, the bad ones, full of wealth and the righteous, godly ones, struggling and suffering? This is a riddle. The psalm's answer, friends, is that, hold on, we all die, God makes it right after. God makes it right in the hereafter. But don't be mistaken. The psalm says it is stupid to trust in wealth because you die and because your wealth can't help you there. Your wealth can't, verse 7, ransom someone's soul. Your wealth, your possessions can't do anything for you when it comes to death. It just goes to someone else. So why trust in wealth as if it could get you into heaven? It's stupid. Now, again, note, the psalmist isn't just poo-pooing or condemning money for money's sake. He's going after the one who is trusting in wealth to have some sort of influence on life after death. And it doesn't, and it can't. Death is it. And so it is in this life, therefore, this life, time to decide how you want to spend forever. The word ransom there literally means just to redeem, to purchase, to to buy back. Wealth cannot redeem your soul. It cannot purchase you from death, from sin. Money can't do it, so stop trusting in it. Stop spinning your wheels for just more and more of that because you're going to die. It's trying to give us an eternal perspective on things now, not just be overly morbid. The other character in this psalm, we see him in verse 10. He's the fool or stupid one. He appears in verse 13. The one who has foolish confidence. He's the the man or the woman of pomp in verse 12 and 20. To borrow the words of an Old Testament scholar, Alec Mateer, He transliterates this word to the thick-headed or the fat-headed. Just a dumb person. Who's the dummy? One who doesn't trust in Jesus. Don't don't lead with that when you're trying to do evangelism. But they're the thick-headed one. The one suppressing and denying eternity. The one resisting the truth of this psalm. That we are forever and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This fool in his pomp forgetting that they can't take it with them. So friend, I I know this is challenging to us this morning. But remember that the psalmist is connecting the foolishness to the one who's 
trusting in their money and stuff in light of eternity. The fool is the one living so much for the here and now that they're forgetting that their money can't go with them and that their glory will go down too. It reminds me of Jesus' parable. I just want to read this short parable to you from Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The audacity of people to ask Jesus certain things. Get involved in my financial situation. Speak to my brother and tell him to give me the inheritance. Jesus said to him, though, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? He said to them, Take care. So he's now talking to his disciples. He's looking at you and I. Take care that you be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He told them a parable saying, the land of a a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? He said, oh, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Notice the eat, drink, be merry is not a good thing. It's not good. Because God says to him, listen, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So the one who lays up for himself and is not rich toward God. That's what it's like. That's how silly it is. I love that phrase, who's not rich toward God. Friends, that's, that's our hope. So I would be in the midst of a lot of amazing and beautiful people who are rich in God. Not constantly tearing down their barns to make bigger ones and relying on that wealth in light of the eternity that is quickly appro- approaching us. So pay attention. Everyone dies. But not everyone goes to the same place. Verses 13 through 20. I just want to zoom in on two verses though. 14 and 15. Not everyone goes to the same place. Friend, look at verse 14. This this strange word, sheol. Like sheep, they, that's the fool, the stupid one, the man or woman in in his or her pomp, relying on wealth in light of death. Like sheep, they are appointed for sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. It's kind of confusing. Like, what is this word? What is going on here? To make it even more confusing, Sheol is used in different ways in Scripture. Two main ways. First, Sheol can sometimes mean the grave. That is the place where everyone goes when we die. It's just thought of as like a place of the dead. You can think of it as like the grave. So in that sense, it is universal. Kind of like I've been speaking of death throughout this morning. Sheol can be used that way. It's not being used that way here, as we'll see. Sheol is also commonly used in the Old Testament scriptures for the grim place that the sinners, unrepentant, unrighteous go after death. That the righteous do not. That's what's being spoken of here. 
transliterated and often thought of in the New Testament scriptures or in the church age as the word hell. The place where the unrighteous, unrepentant go. It is a grim place, a grim experience, a place of torment, to use the Westminster Confession. And that is where you were going, where I was going, if a person hadn't interceded, if the gospel hadn't invaded, if Jesus didn't radically change us, we too would have been destined for the place of torment. It's in our text too. Place of Sheol where the unrighteous and unrepentant go. Look at verse 15. But God. I love those two words. They appear triumphantly in Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, walking in darkness, obeying the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. But God made us alive. This is kind of like the, the Old Testament version of a Psalm or Ephesians 2. The fools are going to Sheol, appointed there. Death is their guide. That is there forever. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Friends, read that. Take it to yourself. God ransomed your soul from the power of hell and He will receive you. And He did that through the work of Jesus. Someone paid your price. Someone loved you so much that He experienced hell so you don't have to. He absorbed the wrath of God, so we only get the kindness and mercy of God. It was our Savior, Jesus Christ, on the cross. There's two New Testament passages. I read one of them, Romans 3, in first service. You're going to get the second one, 1 Peter 1. I gave them the option. They picked Romans 3. So you get 1 Peter 1. It's actually my favorite. Peter's looking at the New Testament church, you and I, and saying, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your life. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Why does this sermon not have to depress you when you leave? Why don't you have to be morbidly introspective and filled with anxiety about expiring? But because you've been redeemed. You've been ransomed, not with gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that redeemed you, made you gods, and has snatched you from Sheol. So now we're looking at an eternity of joy and bliss. Even if our hearts stop right now. That's not the end. We will be with God forever and God's people forever on a new city, on a new earth with a new heaven. And that banner's true. Death at that moment will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, the Lord is making all things new. So if you're visiting with us, sorry, we're not normally this morbid. Death is not often the main thing. But if you're also with us and you're not a Christian, you're considering the claims of Jesus. You're trying to f figure out if we're crazy. Answer, we probably are crazy. Not as crazy as you think, though. 
but the choice is before you. Welcome to New City. I'm glad you're here. But there's a choice that we all must make. Who will you worship? Whom will you serve? And in whom will you trust? There's two options. It's repentance and faith and a beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Or it's a hard heart of rebellion and your end is Sheol and torment. Because God gives you what you want. The invitation is to come. Come to the one who is gentle and lowly and humble in heart. He wants to know you and love you and like you because he gave himself for you. Turn from your ways and trust in him. Those of you who are in Christ, who, who do believe in Jesus, friends, then just be encouraged. We have a sure future, even if that means walking through the door of death. Pay attention, because everyone dies, but not everyone goes to the same place. So I close with the words of C.S. Lewis in his famous work, Mere Christianity. His Plithy sentence, as he often writes so succinctly and clear, he says, friends, aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. We're going to the table, as we do every week, reminded that this is a table of eternal life. A table in the present, which is a foretaste of the meal and the forever to come. It is a table of redemption, of ransom. We, in a few moments, are going to hold elements in our hand, a bread representing the body of Christ, and red wine or white grape juice representing his blood for us. And we're going to receive another sermon, not primarily to our ears, but to our other senses, taste and smell and touch and sight. And we're reminded that it's the body of blood, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, which ransomed us, sinners who were once lost. Here at New City, we say this is a, a meal, a table for believers. If you are resting in Jesus alone for salvation, trusting in Him, then this is a table for you. Come with joy. You don't have to be perfect. You have to be honest that you're a sinner in need of a great Savior, and that is what you have found in Jesus. So if you're trusting in Him, come. The way we do it at New City, you'll uh, exit your rows from the outside and then come in. You'll receive bread and red wine or uh, white grape juice. Take those elements and bring them back to your seat. One last announcement I will make. There's something a little different this morning. We often just have a piano or guitar kind of underneath us as we go. But today, we, are, we have the joy of being led by our music team in a short song in Arabic. The words are printed in your bulletin in English. But this is a song that Salim and Joy taught Megan and sing regularly. The lyrics are, you are great, 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 O God. Great in love, great in faithfulness, great in deliverance, great also in hearing. So let this be an amazing reminder that the ransom, the redemption you have in the blood of Jesus, didn't just buy you, it bought people who don't look like you. Bought a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We're coming to that table now, a table of redemption. So let's prepare our hearts as I close this in prayer before the table. Lord.